Good morning. Take your copy of the scriptures and open them, please, with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And a very happy Father's Day to you all. It was four years ago on a Father's Day that Benjamin was born, and he just celebrated his fourth birthday this past Friday, and he was having a blast. He, we had these little like hats, these little party hats that we had on, and uh, the little noise makers that you make. That was a good idea. <laughs> It was fun, though. He had a great time, and it just it made me realize what a privilege it is to be a father and to, to see examples of godly fathers that we have, even in this very congregation. I'm going to begin by reading the text of Scripture, and then we will walk through the text of Scripture, and then I want us to see four uh, things, four applications that will be hopefully helpful to us as we consider this passage. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to be, begin by reading at verse 41, and we'll read all the way down through verse 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance, and when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him, and it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we once more gather together on a Lord's Day to celebrate the salvation we have received because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, because of the business he performed which you gave him to do, we rejoice together. And even as we sang earlier, even through suffering and through pain, you are still the God who is our joy. Please help us this day to see from your word truths that can feed our hungry and thirsty souls and that we would be encouraged to obey the things that you have called us to do even as Jesus Christ was submissive to the will and plan of his Father. For we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You all know the important roles fathers face um, in the family. Families' units are made up of, hopefully, 
fathers and mothers and children. And fathers play a vital role in that. We see in our own families or extended families what a godly father can be and do to a family. We've also seen, perhaps some of you in your own home, or at the very least in other families' homes that you know of, what can happen when a father isn't godly, or when a father shirks his responsibilities, or when a father is completely absent. You know the pain that it causes some people when you see that. You know if you've experienced that, the pain that causes you. But there's something that is so vital to the family unit, something that's vital to culture and society itself, that says it's important for a father to be in his home as a godly example, doing the work that God has called him to do as a father. I remember as a kid, one of my heroes was my dad. And I think if anything could have disappointed me more, or anything that distressed me more, it wasn't when he had to discipline me with corporal punishment, but it was when I knew I had disappointed him. That was something that was just distressing to me, and I'm sure you feel the same way. If you've, if, when you were a kid and your father was displeased with you, that, that was a very distressing thing. I, I looked up to my father, and, and as, as we, as children should do, revere those fathers who leave us godly examples to follow. In this text today, Jesus references his father, and we see two fathers We see his father that he speaks of in verse 49, but also we notice that there is his earthly father with Mary, his mother. And I believe that in this text, we're going to see several things about Jesus that will hopefully inform several things that should be true of us as well. So let's walk through this text together. Beginning at verse 41, it says, When his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of... Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. This was not necessarily a requirement for every Jew. They didn't go, have to go every single year. But apparently when it came to Joseph, his family was going to be there. He went to the Passover. And originally it was supposed to be just the men who went to the Passover. But here we see that Mary and Jesus both are with him as he goes to the Passover. And in verse 42, we note that Jesus, as he's with them on this particular occasion, is at the age of 12 years old. Now, why does Luke mention this particular detail? It's because when a Jewish boy got to the age of 13, he was considered now, a, in a sense, an adult, a man, a young man, but a man nonetheless. And one of the things that the Jewish religious leaders said Jewish, good Jewish men should do is when their young man was 11 or 12, they had to take him to the Jewish Passover feast in Jerusalem. So here is Jesus on the brink of being 13 years old being considered by his culture, being considered by his parents, being considered by the Jewish leaders as a young Jewish man. Not a child, not a boy. He's a young man. So what is Joseph doing here? 
He's taking Jesus and doing what he's supposed to do as a good Jewish father. He's taking Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And this particular feast, they would celebrate two feasts at the same time. It would last a week long. So when they get there to Jerusalem, it says in verse 43, when they had fulfilled the days, they return. The Jewish custom was that they had to stay there at least two days. But here it says when the days were fulfilled seems to suggest that Joseph wasn't just going to be there for two days. Joseph was going to be there for the full week of the celebration. When they would go to these Passover feasts, it wasn't like us, where if you're going to go somewhere, you're going to go celebrate somewhere, you hop into your vehicle and you just drive to wherever it is, even if it's hours and hours away. Back in the early first century, traveling was not only hazardous, it was slow because they didn't have cars. They didn't have uh, a faster way of getting to places. And so because of the treacherousness of the journey, because of the length of the journey, they would actually go in groups. They would caravan. And it wouldn't just be Joseph and Mary and Jesus and any of the other children that they had with them. It would have been Joseph and Mary and Jesus and uncle so-and-so and aunt so-and-so and all the cousins and all of their extended neighbors and all the people in the region near them. The, these caravans would get quite large, somewhat reminiscent of the Israelites wandering in the, the wilderness. These would be large, large caravans. So it wasn't unusual then that as they return on, in verse 43 that Jesus decides to stay in Jerusalem and his mom and dad have no idea. This is not Mary and Joseph being poor parents. This is probably an example of miscommunication. For specific reasons we'll see in a moment. But Mary and Joseph leave after the days of the feast are over. And there's this huge caravan, and the way the caravan would work typically is that the mothers and the, the women and the children would be in the front of the caravan going, and the men, the fathers, the husbands, as well as the older young men would be in the back. Now, it may seem strange, but it was probably, I would assume, for safety's sake, so that if there were robbers or highwaymen, they would be in the back and making sure that everything was safe and be able to control where everyone was going and, and have supervision. So what may have happened here is Mary is up in the front of this big caravan and she's with all the other wives and all the other moms and all the other children and she doesn't see Jesus and she, you know, maybe she has a couple other little kids around her of her own and, but she doesn't see Jesus anywhere but she thinks, well, that's not necessarily a surprise. I'm sure Joseph has him in the back of the caravan because Jesus is, after all, on the verge of being a young man. He's one of the older boys. So it would make sense that he would stay back with Joseph. Meanwhile, in the back of the caravan, Joseph is walking with the rest of the men, and he's looking around him, and he's, I don't see Jesus anywhere, but oh, he's probably with Mary in the front of the caravan. And so, in some ways, what probably happened was complete miscommunication on the part of the parents here. They go a, a day's journey, the text says. And as they're camping out and as they're setting up their tents, because, of course, this would have been a long journey for them. This would probably have taken several days. They're going around. Finally, Mary and Joseph meet up together. You know how it is when you meet up together after you've been apart in, like, a mall or something like that, and you're comparing notes, you know, how, what did you find? How did so-and-so behave, etc. Mary and Joseph come up together, and they're comparing notes, and instantly a problem is seen. Wait, don't you have Jesus? I thought you had Jesus. They start to freak out. Where's Jesus? 
And so the text tells us there in uh, verse 44, they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. After they realized neither of them had him, they thought, okay, let's let cooler heads prevail. Jesus probably is hanging out with his cousins or his friends. So they start going tent to tent, walking around, seeing if they can find Jesus. And they probably aren't necessarily too concerned yet, although the fact that they had completely traveled a day's journey and had no idea where he was was certainly concerning. But their level of concern begins to increase as tent after tent after tent, Jesus is absent. And they go amongst the cousins and they say, hey, where's Jesus? Was he with you? No, he wasn't with us. And they go with the aunts and uncles. Have you seen Jesus? We've been looking everywhere for him. They say, no, I, I haven't seen him. Now they start to get nervous. In fact, if you are thinking from the perspective of a mother, she's, she's petrified. In fact, when, later on, when they talk with Jesus, it's not Joseph who confronts Jesus. It's Mary. She's concerned. But I'm thinking as a father, if I had traveled an entire day and realized I don't have Benjamin with me, I would be concerned too. I'd be terrified. Where's my son? So what do Mary and Joseph do? They start thinking, what could have happened? Somehow we lost him. And they, the thought crosses their mind. I wonder if he's back in Jerusalem still. Maybe someone took him. Maybe he got lost. Jerusalem's not a terribly large city, but it, still, he probably hasn't been there too often. Or at least every time he's there, he's only with us. What should we do? So they decide he's not with them in their company. He must be in Jerusalem. And they begin the trek back to Jerusalem. So they have traveled an entire day away from Jerusalem, find that Jesus is missing, and say, okay, we got to go back. So the very next day, they travel another entire day back to Jerusalem. Now we're two days, no idea where Jesus is. They get into Jerusalem. Finally, it's the third day. They're looking everywhere. They're probably retracing their steps. Okay, where, Joseph, where were you over here? Or, or where were you at this time? Where was Jesus? Who had Jesus last? Were you with Jesus? Was he with you over here at this celebration? Was he with you at this meal? And they're trying to compare, steps, or compare notes and, and retrace steps. And they start looking around. And they're looking everywhere. We find out in verse 46, since Jerusalem wasn't necessarily very big, they eventually get to the temple. And finally, on this third day, they found him in the temple. Can you imagine the relief in Mary's heart when she sees her son, her oldest son, alive and well? And then Joseph seeing his son and then realizing, hang on a second, what is he doing? He's inside the temple. Has he been here the entire time? How did he get here? They see him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers. The temple was where all of the PhDs, if you will, would have been. The PhDs of Israel. The intelligent religious leaders. And when they would gather together during the feasts, of particularly the Passover feast, and they were coming from all over, that was kind of the watering hole for all of the religious elites. 
the ones who had been educated. They'd go to the temple, and that's where they would discuss the finer points of the Torah and theology, and, and they'd hash out ideas, and they would iron sharpen iron, as it were, ideas amongst each other. And here is a 12-year-old boy sitting in the middle of the religious PhDs. And what is he doing? He's listening to them. He's listening to them discuss theology. He's listening to them to discuss the finer points of the Torah, of their, their religious interpretations of the scriptures, rehearsing the histories of Israel and how this act of God led to this thing. He's hearing them. But he's doing more than a little 12-year-old boy would probably normally do in that setting. He is not only hearing them in verse 46, he's asking them questions. Now, one of the things that I'm noticing about toddlers is they ask questions, lots of questions. It's, it's endless, seemingly. And a lot of times, it's the same question over and over again. Imagine now a 12-year-old boy asking questions. He's not just asking necessarily, how does this work? Or, hang on, could you define that word you use? Although perhaps that may have happened. But I think what Luke is indicating here is that Jesus was not only listening to what they were saying, but he was evaluating what they were saying. And he was saying, hang on. If that is true, what about this? And what about that? In other words, Jesus isn't just asking questions about defining words and what are they talking about here and I don't understand what you're saying. Jesus is asking intelligent questions that are designed to elicit certain responses and certain conclusions from the doctors. So much so that the longer they've been talking with him, the longer that they have been speaking and conducting their theological discussions with a 12-year-old Jewish boy, and the longer they listen to his poignant, pointed questions... Verse 47, all those that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. There was something about what Jesus did in the temple with those teachers that astounded the PhDs. He was asking them questions that were intelligent questions. He was even interacting with these religious leaders who were trained who probably knew the Torah front and back and inside and out, who had no doubt for years taught things from the Torah to the Jewish people. And now here is this 12-year-old boy named Jesus who's asking them questions and listening to them and interacting with them in such a way that suggests he's not normal. There's something different about him. When Mary and Joseph see this scene, they were amazed, it says in verse 48. They're amazed. This was our son, our 12-year-old son. He's the son of a carpenter. He's not a PhD. He doesn't have his doctorate in theology. And yet here is a 12-year-old boy sitting with all of these religious leaders, speaking with them intelligently about the things of God. How many 12-year-olds do you know who would be doing that? 
His mother sees this scene and her heart bursts forth. She has been in turmoil for the last three days, wondering, where is my son? Has somebody taken him? Is he harmed? Is he okay? Is he hungry? I don't know. But now here she is in the temple, seeing him amazing these doctors. And all of a sudden, I think there's a sense in which she feels this righteous indignation. And she says, son, why have you dealt with us like this? Do you not realize your father and I have been worried sick for you? We've been looking for you everywhere. Didn't you know that we were leaving to go back home? The feast is over. Didn't you know that you should have stuck with us? Why have you done this? And notice she says, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. This is not a new term introduced in this chapter because what is said in verse 35 this is Simeon in Jerusalem he was a devout man looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him and when he holds Jesus Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Notice this. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here, a prophet, as it were, speaks to Mary saying, you will experience sorrow because of this child. And not 15 verses later, at the age of 12, she expresses expresses to her son, who's 12 years old, you are giving me sorrow. You're causing me sorrow and pain. But Jesus looks with gentleness into the eyes of his mother He sees her pain. He understands, I think, her frustration. And he says to both his mother and his father, how is it that you were looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Wist ye not, that's the King James, did you not know, did you not realize that I must be about my father's business? Now, you may have a different translation in front of you. If you have a different translation other than the King James or the New King James, it probably says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Because what's at stake here? What's the problem for Mary and Joseph? It's not that they didn't know what Jesus was supposed to be doing. What had Joseph heard in a dream by an angel of the Lord? You're going to name this child Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He's a special child. Mary has learned that she, in Luke chapter 1, she has learned that the child that we formed within her will be formed by the Holy Spirit. This child is important. This child is special. It's not that they didn't understand that he had a specific business he was supposed to do, even though they didn't understand all of what that would entail. But they were looking for where he was. The issue isn't, wasn't, what is he doing? The issue is, where are you? 
And the translations there that you have that may say, did you not know that I needed to be in my father's house is probably part of what Jesus was getting at. Did you not know that I needed to be where my father is? And herein is an important distinction Jesus is now making to his parents because they're not quite realizing that even though Jesus is their son, nevertheless, he's not. Joseph isn't even the father. The Holy Spirit, in a supernatural way, wrought about the human Jesus in the womb of Mary. Jesus says, you're wondering where I am. Do you not realize that I need to be where my father is? You're my earthly parents. You're wondering where I am, but there is an important distinction you need to understand. I'm not any normal child. I am the son of God. And I need to be in the house of my father. Joseph and Mary were saying, you need to be in the house of your parents. And Jesus is saying, I need to be in the house of my father, capital F. But what does he need to be doing in his father's house, the temple, the place where people went to worship God, to discuss the the teachings and theology found within the scriptures? What was Jesus supposed to be doing there? He was supposed to be doing what he would do for his three-year ministry later on, many years later at the age of 30 when he is commissioned then finally to begin his earthly ministry. What does he do? Over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew and other Gospels, we see that Jesus teaches and it says that people say, what kind of teaching is this? We've never heard it expressed this way before. He teaches as one who has authority not like the scribes and the Pharisees, not like the religious leaders. He's in his father's house doing his father's business, and part of his father's business was to proclaim who he was. And here, Jesus isn't doing that yet. He's not standing up in front of these doctors and saying, "Uh, just so you guys know, I know that you're the trained PhDs of Israel and that you have all your doctorates in theology and you probably memorize the entirety of the Torah, but just so you guys know, I'm the one who wrote it. I'm the son of God. He's not doing that. He's simply interacting with these men and they're realizing that there's something different and special about him. But later on, when he's 30 and 31 and 32 and 33, they are going to know without a shadow of a doubt and hear from his own lips who he is. He is the son of God. Isn't that part of why Luke is writing to Theophilus? We won't go there, but if you go read at the beginning of chapter 1, Luke is trying to convince Theophilus, this Roman person, this Roman authority, Jesus is who he said he was. And people could see it even when he's 12 years old. He's in the temple talking with the religious leaders And they understand there's something unique about him. And here Jesus takes this moment to explain to his parents, you want me to be with you, but you need to understand something. I have a mission. But this is not Jesus talking back to his parents like a typical teenager. 
This is Jesus trying to teach his parents, and in some senses, he is now establishing for them the understanding, you may have your hopes that I'll be a carpenter, but I have a mission I've been sent to do, and I must be about my father's business. What's interesting that Luke notes in verse 50 is that his parents hear what he said, but they don't understand it. They understood not the saying which he spake to them, which tells you Jesus is trying to communicate something to them, but they don't quite get it yet. And I don't think that we can cast stones at them for that. If I were Joseph, if Laura were Mary, or you were Joseph, or you were Mary, you wouldn't understand either. Jesus hasn't been creating miracles or doing miracles. There are what we call apocryphal stories where Jesus, as a kid, you know, he realizes he's the son of God, and so he forms out of clay these pigeons. And these ancient writings that are heretical and not true, these ancient writings, people said that Jesus, as a kid, made these little clay pigeons and then spoke into them life, and they turned into real pigeons so that he could have pets to play with. Jesus wasn't doing that. Legends were made, and people were trying to make it sound like that's what he was doing, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus looked like any other ordinary kid, except for the fact that he had an acute understanding of God's word and God's mission for him. In verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. Imagine Mary. She doesn't understand what he's saying, but she knows there's something important. So she treasures these words. And I think Luke writes this because I think Luke may have heard about this. Luke may have heard about this from her. We don't know, but perhaps he did. And as he's listening to Mary explain this, and he sees her emotion and the way that she describes her feelings and thoughts as she hears Jesus say these words. Imagine Luke trying to write this down and say, Theophilus, I wish you could have been there. There was something special about that moment. And verse 52 tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He developed, he continued to develop physically and he continued to be in favor both with the Lord himself, his father, and with men around him. So this is Jesus in the temple during the Passover. He was sent to do his father's bidding. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he did so with the mindset of humility, being obedient to the father's business, being obedient to the death of the cross. What was Jesus' business? Jesus' business was to come to redeem lost souls, to demonstrate his identity through miracles, through crying out to a raging storm, peace, be still. Through teaching and expanding on the law, you have heard it said that you shall not X, Y, or Z, but I tell you. Jesus did all of these things and he performed the business the Father gave to him to perfection. Many years later after this event, Jesus would be hanging on a cross seeing his mother weeping. His father, Joseph, is no longer in the picture. And as the oldest son, who seems in verse 49 to be dismissing the concerns of his mother, as, his, as her oldest son hangs on the cross, looks at 
his mother and says, Behold your son, nodding towards John, and says to John, Behold your mother. In his agony, he was caring for his mother. The issue here was not Jesus being a rebellious teenager. That's the, thought, the very thought of that is blasphemous. The issue here is not Jesus talking back to his parents. The issue is Jesus telling them and reminding them what he was supposed to do. You might be here today wondering, what does this mean for me? Okay, we know Jesus is doing his father's business. We know that we're supposed to be accepting of who Jesus is and that Jesus came to save sinners. But what does that mean for me? Well, I have four E's for you as we finish. Four E's that should be true of us. Because if Jesus came to build his church, book, the book of Matthew, Jesus says to Peter, I tell you upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He promised to build his church, and then he gave his church certain business to do. Jesus faithfully performed his business. Now the question is, will you faithfully perform the business he's given to you? And there are four E's I want to leave you with. Four E's of what we should be doing in obedience to the Father's business for us. Because the Father hasn't told us to go die on a cross for the sins of humanity. That was the business of Jesus. But he has given us business. And the first E of business for us is evangelism. Evangelism. I was stirred this past week, and to be candid, convicted to to my core in many ways. Because I believe that for me, this is probably one of the weakest things in my life. Not that I haven't shared the gospel with people and not that there, there isn't some level of evangelism happening, but the, the zeal, the passion isn't there. And if it's not in me, how can I expect it to be in anybody else sitting in the pew? This is unquestionably the business of the Father for the church. That's why I had Pastor Dixon read Matthew 28. Because as Jesus is about to leave his disciples, what does he tell them to do? Go into all the world and make disciples. When he says that, I'm not saying easy believism. I'm not saying that you're persuading people because the only way a person comes to faith in Christ is through the working of God's spirit. But he does call us to be the instruments of proclaiming that message. What are you doing? What am I doing? To fulfill the Father's business for the church in evangelism. When was the last time you spoke to somebody about the gospel? When was the last time you intentionally talked with your coworker about Christ? Or at the very least, when was the last time you spoke with your neighbors? I'm not even saying shared the gospel with them, just talked with them. When was the last time you built relationships with unsaved people? When was the last time you sat down and listed out people that you commit to pray for that, that God would open their blind eyes? And that he would give you an opportunity to either bring them to church to hear the message of the gospel or to give you the boldness and the opportunity to do that. Jesus left his parents for three days at 12 years old to do his father's business. That is radical obedience to the command of his father. Where's the radical obedience in your life to the command of God to you as the church to evangelize? What are we as a church doing 
to reach out to people. I'm excited about our activity tonight. Five o'clock, having people come over to hear the message of the gospel. This is the business the Father has given the church. We should be doing evangelism. Number two, exhortation. Exhortation. As the church, we are supposed to be exhorting one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, a verse you probably have memorized or at the very least know well. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We're called to exhort each other. Yes, we evangelize the lost, and that needs to be a priority. That's why I listed it first, because that was the great commission that God gave to his disciples before, that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended to the Father, at the right hand of the Father in heaven. But he also exhorts us to exhort each other. What are you doing to exhort fellow believers? That means you have to be interacting with them. It can be really easy to be in cliques. In our culture especially, it's really easy. Just have young people with young people, middle-aged people with middle-aged people, young parents with young parents, older folks with older folks. But that's not what God has said for us to do. We are supposed to exhort one another together. Together. Let the older exhort the younger. Let the older men exhort the younger men. The older women exhort the younger women. This should be characteristic of God's church. The business of the church is to evangelize and to exhort each other with the truth of God's word. What are you doing to exhort fellow believers in our congregation? Number three, encouragement encouragement. In Philippians 2, I referenced it earlier, Paul says to the church in Philippi, if there therefore be any consolation in Christ, that's what the King James says. You may have a different translation and it says better for our common vernacular. If there is any encouragement in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ? You better believe there is. There is encouragement in Christ And if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, the idea is if there's any sense of compassion, then fulfill my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. We are supposed to have a ministry of encouragement to each other. That was what Barnabas was. Barnabas was a man who encouraged others. He encouraged Paul. He embraced Paul when no one else wanted to embrace him. He encouraged him. What are you doing to actively encourage and build up someone else? In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, we read, for the per- well, let me back up. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the encouraging, the building up of the body of Christ. He is given specific functions for certain people to do that, but the reality is is we're all supposed to be doing it. We're all supposed to be encouraging each other. We're all supposed to be lifting each other up. And when I say that this is the Father's business, these are not negotiable. These are not, well, okay, you maybe aren't good at evangelism, so don't worry about the evangelism part. Maybe you're more of an exhorter, so you focus on exhorting, you let somebody else who's better at evangelism do evangelism. No, no. 
All of these things should be true of the church. And if you are saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you are in the church, which means you should be evangelizing actively. Actively. It doesn't mean that you're going to be standing on the street corner every single day and that you don't have any more free time or anything like that. You're just supposed to be proclaiming the gospel. That's not what that means. But it does mean that there's a consistent life pattern of evangelism. It does mean there's a consistent life pattern of exhortation. When people look at you, do they know they're going to hear an exhortation from the scripture? Exhortation includes confrontation at times. Do you know that if you're in the body of Christ, one of your responsibilities is to exhort in a gentle, humble way Someone who's erring. Someone who's struggling. Do you know that you're supposed to be encouraging? What comes out of your mouth regularly? Is it encouragement? Do people look at you and know that you have the intent to encourage them? Finally, number four, equip. Equipping. Again, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, He's given these different teachers, evangelists, etc., for the perfecting of the saints, the equipping of the saints, it says in newer translations. This should be true of all of us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for approval, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be mature, Complete, equipped, equipped for every good work. This should be true of the church. What are we doing to equip other people? Each of us has different gifts. I'm not suggesting that we don't have different gifts in here right now. I'm saying we all have the same responsibility to complete the Father's business, but doing so with our specific gifts is the thing. Maybe you can help somebody as a teacher. You can teach the word of God. Maybe you can help somebody through your ministry of helping them with personal things. Maybe you have a gift for counseling. Whatever the case or gift God has given to you, are you doing it for equipping other people in the church? These four E's, I believe, are the Father's business for us. And there's more. There's more. But I think these are a good place to start because what is the purpose of the church? What is the goal of the church? Why are we meeting together? Why do we gather together? What's the point? We're supposed to be doing the Father's business. And just as Jesus needed to be in his Father's house doing his Father's business, so must we, Jesus' bride, the church, be at his house doing his work, which he calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you gave to us an example of faithful obedience and that that faithful obedience, that active obedience is the basis for our righteousness so that when we stand before your throne one day, it's not because we were able to muster some good within us, for that that is not possible. We're dressed in Christ's righteousness alone, as we sang earlier, faultless to stand before the throne. 
So we thank you that you have given to us that salvation. I pray, Lord, for any person in this room who has not yet believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would move in his or her heart even now to need to know more and that you would stir in the hearts of your church, the people even in this room who have trusted Christ, stir within them a passion for souls. Stir within us a passion to teach and exhort the truths of your word with each other. Stir within us to have hearts of encouragement that we might seek to actively build up others. And stir within us a desire to equip each other for the work of the ministry, for the work of the Father's business for us. To the praise of your glory. Amen.